welcome to a podcast series from the Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences Faculty at Queen's University, Belfast. This series is examining debates around constitutional futures on this island and these islands. I'm Professor Colin Harvey from the School of Law at Queen's and like many others, I'm involved in and have a great interest in these conversations. It really is a fascinating time for this discussion. I'm really privileged, pleased really, that our guest today is a great, great friend and colleague in the Constitutional Conversations Group, a fellow academic and leading contributor to discussions in this area, Eilish Rooney. Eilish is an Emeritus Scholar at Ulster University's Transitional Justice Institute in the School of Law. Her research and community activist interests include intersectionality theory, women's lives in conflict, and grassroots transitional justice. Her current research involves women's constitutional conversations workshops funded in Ireland by the Department of Foreign Affairs and in Northern Ireland by the Joseph Rowntree Charitable Trust. Personally, I'd like to say that I've learned so much over the years of working closely with Eilish. I've learned a lot and absolutely delighted that she's joined uh, this episode of the podcast series. As you're very, very welcome. I wish people could see me, Colin, because I'm sitting smiling at the prospect of all the lovely things you've said about me and nervously at the prospect of having to meet them. So I'm delighted to be here. Thanks. I'm, I'm delighted that you've joined uh, the series. I've said a few things there about your, your 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 background and your work, but I wonder just for an audience here, many, many, many members of the audience will be very familiar with you and your work, but if you could outline outline your background role, current work, and just personal interest and involvement in these constitutional discussions and conversations. Well, this might seem incidental to listeners, but coming here today, I got lost looking for your room in this brand new, spanking, gorgeous law centre building. And what it reminded me of was the first time I came to Queen's in the mid-1970s. I was a mother of two children and had left school without any qualifications. So had to go back and do A-levels to get here. And the first time I came here, I didn't know how to get here. So I was at City Hall and had to ask a busman where I would get. And I didn't even know how, did you say Queen's University? This seems ridiculous, but it's part of the gap that there is between academia and life in the real world in the community that I came from and the community that most people come from. Um, so I had to find my way here feeling lost and coming to a completely both alien and amazing environment where I studied English literature, love of my heart, and encountered a place that was, it could have been in England, it could have been in Wales, could have been somewhere else, because the conflict that was going on where I lived and in the streets had no, it, apparently, no impact on this place whatsoever. So I think that's an important start to telling you something about the fact that I've always remained grounded in the community that I come from. And I think with an understanding of the huge gap there is between all the wonderful research that goes on in institutions like this, 
and all the concern there is for communities like the one I came from, in places like this, by excellent academics who've made such a difference to our lives. But the gap is very rarely crossed in relation to people in working class communities feeling that they've got any part or place in institutions like this. Well, thank you very much, Anish, for, for sharing that. And to some extent, perhaps today and in, in this discussion and future discussions, we might think about how we address that, that gap. In terms of one of the conversations at the moment uh, around the constitutional future, around referendums and, and all of that, that I know you're, you're very much involved in, there's, there's often a very strong focus on the Good Friday Agreement. In some ways, people constantly recite the document in these conversations. But what do you think it means to say that this process is grounded in uh, the Good Friday Agreement? You know, what does that actually mean? What it actually means is that, you know, go and have a look at the document where, as a result of negotiations, there was an agreement between the two governments and the parties to the talks that if at some time in the future a majority of people in Northern Ireland decided that they would wish a poll or that they would wish to vote for unity. Um, a new Ireland, a united Ireland, was the language of the Good Friday Agreement, that they could do so. And that was part of the negotiation and result of the Good Friday Agreement, that at the time there wasn't much attention paid to it. But I do remember some again, academic, excellent academic articles where people pointed out how radical the agreement was for precisely that reason. That at that time, around a million and a half people would have the option at some point in the future of changing the constitutional standing, not only of the six counties, but of the island of Ireland and of the British Isles. I mean, it was a remarkable I mean, for historical reasons, it had to be there and it was there, but it was a remarkable aspect of the agreement that really has been asleep. In public domain anyway, it's been asleep for almost 25 years. And I suppose now that, that part of the negotiated agreement has come to the fore for all the reasons that you've laid out in articles and talks that you've given as well and, and that we all know. At least there, there is a strong suggestion, you know, with a very firm evidential basis in a sense that, you know, women's activism around this, including the agreement and that what has followed is very much underplayed and that women's role sometimes rendered almost entirely invisible. And, and given that we're in these constitutional conversations at, at the moment, and I know this is work that you're involved in, you know, for for audience, really, what what are the gendered components of this? You know, the role of feminist activism, and the role of women, really, in leading these discussions on the island. Oh, great question, Colin. Um, and there's two there's two strands to it that I'd like to kind of just talk through. Um, women on the ground, if you like, in working class uh, women's groups, have always been active and have always throughout the conflict, carried on conversations about matters of common interest. That's just always carried on. And in some ways, whenever um, we reach the point of negotiations and headlines about um, 
unionist and nationalist having negotiations and talking. I used to think, well, actually, that's been going on for such a long time at a level that was ignored um, and, and never really regarded as significant. Um, but that actually, at ground level, I think prepared the way for negotiations that followed. And, you know, always great relationships between people. So that has continued. And indeed, um, women in local women's groups have led the way in this conversation that we're talking about. Not, if you like, at the front of the shop, but in a way that really makes what appears at the front of the shop significant for everyone. They've carried on the conversation. They've designed means of holding the conversation in a way that everybody has their say. Uh, there's lots more I could say about that. Maybe you want to come back to it at some point. But there's another um, aspect of the women's movement, if you like, or women's organisations, networks that rely on government funding, whereby there's an anxiety about the conversation. And frequently constitutional matters have been seen as opposed to or in some way totally distinct from bread and butter issues that really matter to women. Childcare, unequal pay, women's voices missing from the public sphere. You know, those ways in which women are, I think oppressed is a word that's not too strong to use. It's, it's a true word. But in that women's sector, if you like, that, that um, women's movement sector, there has been an anxiety. And I think it's been an anxiety that didn't have to be there because I believe that constitutional matters are bread and butter issues at heart. As soon as the conversation starts, people want to know, what difference will this make to me in my life? You know, what's the unemployment rate in the Republic? Will we have that here? What's, uh, what's healthcare like? What's education? Those are all bread and butter issues. And I feel that perhaps the anxiety about the women's sector openly and publicly taking on the conversation, um, maybe that's breaking down. I hope it is. And certainly the women's movement at ground level is leading the way. Eilish, one of the fascinating things about the whole process um, that raises a whole range of questions, really, is around the role of the British government and particularly the role of the Secretary of State and this whole question around... Uh, a potential referendum here, which you know, and you know, you know, we've done work on, we've thought about, we've talked about for for a number of years. Do you think it would be helpful for more clarity to emerge around that? It's so obvious, Colin. It, it just it's so obvious. It doesn't bear repeating. It does it bear repeating? Whenever it's not being done, it's the responsible thing to do. The responsible thing for the Secretary of State to do. In all of our names, in the names of all of the people who are here, whatever their political opinion or perspective, whether they have one or don't, I think it's an obligation, a duty and a responsibility for the Secretary of State to stand up and say, on this basis, for these reasons, because of this evidence, I will call a referendum. So suggestion there that more clarity might actually be helpful at the moment in terms of this current discussion. More clarity as soon as possible for people. In terms of the then the Irish government, there's been a lot of focus recently around whether the Irish government 
not just in relation to the Good Friday Agreement, but the Irish Constitution as well, is really doing enough to prepare the ground uh, for what might emerge in the future around all constitutional options. And in relation to that, to maybe start by asking, there's, there's been a suggestion that the Irish government establish an all-island citizens' assembly, you know, major focus really on, as we talked about earlier, civic dialogue. Do you think that will be a helpful, welcome initiative? That will be a helpful, welcome initiative. I think it will happen at some point in the future. I can understand the reluctance of Michal Martin at the moment to fully embrace the conversation openly and in public, but he sees it coming as well. And I I think that the the all island unit, the shared island unit rather, um, is an example of the government taking action and making a significant and important gesture and backing it up with funding to signal that they have an eye on the conversation, uh, that they will move whenever they see fit. And maybe that will be sooner than we realise. Michal Martin's term is coming to an end soon. So he hasn't done it, but he has certainly, if you like, opened the door, I think, and opened the door in an important way. If you look at that shared island initiative and all the projects that are now under that umbrella, projects that were going on, going to be going on, and all that. But if you look at it, I mean, two institutions on in the, in the north have benefited enormously. One we're sitting in today, which is Queen's, and Ulster. The amount of research and joint research across the island is enormous. Now, I think that has to have some impacts as well. You know, impacts that, were not, that are not visible and are not necessarily self-evident, even in the title of a project. That, that's a great point, Eilish, you know, in terms of what's happening at the at the moment you know you're absolutely right you do wonder whether rather quietly and undramatically a lot of the the hard research work around preparing the ground is quietly being done by all these projects there are conversations by another name in a sense you know and really projects that are really going to be beneficial health-wise um for young people you know loads of a variety of projects that are really significant that Will make a difference. A fantastic point. I often think, and maybe you know, the podcast here, our discussions might be useful in that. Is that even raising awareness of the fact that this is happening? Sometimes I wonder, are people as aware as as they might be that that all this work is ongoing? And um, because you know, often we are met with the view, well, what conversation? Yes. What conversation? It, it isn't happening, but. You, you have this world where an awful lot of work seems to be ongoing. The benefits of working together on a small island, on issues of common interest, on research, on pathfinding research. I mean, the knowledge and experience we have in the north of our ways of working with the conflict as well is beneficial to people in the Republic. So there's loads of that going on. And as I say, you know, we talk about constitutional conversations as though constitutional conversations have to be about the constitution. <laughs> and that's not necessarily the case. There are thousands of conversations going on on this island. Again, you know, fantastic point and leads on to really a question around language and the way that people engage with each other on the island. And it's noticeable that this language of a shared island and the unit and the initiatives. And I just wondered, 
your thoughts on that framework, on the initiatives, the work that's ongoing, you know, what your view, both in terms of the linguistic framing of that conversation, but also the various initiatives that you've mentioned already. Um, language is so vitally important here, and um, I respect that because it's important to me too, it's important to each of us. Um, there's the All-Island Women's Forum, which I think is a great use of language as well. Because the All-Island Women's Forum um, draws on women from all parts, from all um, counties in the island, together to discuss issues of urgent interest on the island. Now, it's an All-Island Women's Forum. Um, a shared island is another phrase that you're that we're using. A new Ireland, you know, what's been fascinating too about this conversation is how terminology enters the sphere of conversation, where people find ways to acknowledge sensitivities about the conversation, uh, to enable the conversation to happen um, for people for whom it might be a difficult conversation. So I think it's absolutely vital that we all recognise that. And that we use the language that we're comfortable with. You know, a, a conversation about unity. Bring that on too. You know, that, that's a legitimate conversation. A conversation about union beyond the border pole. Let's hear that conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. Just to, again, linked into that, you know, you've done an enormous amount of work on issues of equality and and then human rights over many years. This was a question, is the Good Friday Agreement is, is full of the language of equality and rights. Do you think equality and rights considerations are playing as much of a role as they should really be in the current discussions? I think they've played a huge role in people's experience of governance since the Good Friday Agreement. I think they've played a core role um, in the expectations that we read out of the Good Friday Agreement to kind of join a circle from where we started there. Um, I certainly had um, high expectations that social policy and action would follow from the agreement. I mean, one of the reasons you mentioned my intersectionality theory work, one of the reasons I went there was because of Section 75 that pulled together people who were recognised as having been discriminated against in the past. And what I sought to do was to, you know, use that as a theoretical framework to look at women's lives. Putting together religion and politics and all of the other dimensions, disablement, being a parent, being a lone parent, you know, all of those different categories of experience that required policy action to ensure that people were treated equally. And whenever I did that work, um, you know, I looked at targeting social need and I looked at poverty and realised that it was a struggle a day for people to obtain a just outcome from the Good Friday Agreement in terms of equality. And, you know, I think part, that partly fuels the conversation we're having now, that the agreement didn't match its commitments in practice, both for human rights and for equality. Um, now, 
as far as the conversation at the moment goes, I think this is quite an exciting time to have a conversation about human rights and equality. Because it feels like, may not be, but it feels like there's a drawing board there waiting to be written on where people can revisit the Good Friday Agreement and its promise. Look at our lives now, north and south, and say what needs to be done and what a new constitution could commit to in relation to rights and equality. And are, are those themes emerging? From You mentioned earlier about conversations that are happening now and you're involved in, and even the work with things like the conversations cards that you've evolved. Are those themes emerging from those conversations as well? Those themes emerge immediately from those conversations, Colin. And they emerge immediately in whatever community or neighbourhood that you're in. As soon as we start talking about constitutional futures, people want to talk about things like health, education, you know, fundamentally equality and rights issues are to the fore for everyone. Um, every conversation we've had using the cards or not using the cards in a community organisation with cross-border conversations with women, you know, wherever people have immediate concerns about everyday life uh, that they want to express and want to see secured within the union, within unity. But those issues are the key issues and they come up again and again. Supposed to, again, the, the fa fascinating insights, and I'm sure that you know the audience will, you know, that sense of these evolving conversations and the themes that are emerging. But I suppose I want to just raise a, an additional question that that often comes up as well around the contested nature of some of this. These conversations are clearly happening, and there's a lot of work being done. But I just wonder, do you sense any trepidation, trepidation anxiety, nervousness? about entering this contested constitutional space, whether that's in civil society, whether it's in universities, given the nature of this society and, you know, the, the context for the debate? Um, I don't myself experience trepidation in having this conversation. I'm eager to have it and my enthusiasm for it and openness to various views um, makes it um, an enervating conversation to have wherever it happens. I'm, you know, as I say, up for it. I really uh, look forward to it. I look forward to opportunities. And we've had, as a constitutional conversations group, we've had lots of opportunities pre-COVID to engage with people very widely in lots of different um, venues with the conversation. Now, there has been obvious opposition, I think, from what I would call political unionism from some in leadership in within unionism. And I know that that has had an impact um, on your own um, participation, not that it has reduced your participation or your push in the conversation, but that it has certainly um, been a pressure and stress that I think is disgraceful, really. I think it's disgraceful. But it hasn't helped other stopped other people who want to have part in the conversation from having the conversation. Look at your podcast, look at the conversations that are ongoing. And as I say, those conversations that aren't called constitutional conversations, but are happening across the island, all of that is flourishing. So um, the last thing I think you've mentioned that I haven't covered really is academic institutions, I think, are profoundly conservative places. 
with radical people in them. And, you know, radical people are sometimes welcome within them. If you're bringing research money with you, perhaps you can be very welcome. But um, a university provides an excellent base also for doing the research and the preparation that's needed for the conversation that we're talking about. Thank you very much, Eilish. And just to really follow on from echo what you've said, you know, it's just a remarkable time to be living in in the way that this discussion is flourishing and the amount of work and, you know, it has a level of focus that I just can't recall ever seeing before and, and long may that continue in terms of just responsible preparation and management. You'll probably you'll be pleased to know this as we're drawing to the the, 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 the close of of this podcast and I really enjoy listening to your insights. And what I've tended to do in this this podcast is at the end to ask people to engage, you know, in prediction, which is always a problematic thing to do here, but and it may be slightly unfair, but we're gonna give it a go now. If we were sitting here in 2030, uh, and I use 2030 deliberately because it's been really striking the number of people who are framing the conversation in the in temporal ways, in time-bound ways, that somehow this decade is important or significant. And that really struck me as an intriguing thing because, you know, personally I am quite keen on timeframes because I think that can focus minds. But if we were sitting here in 10 years, well, less than 10 years time, 2030, given what we know now, given what we've talked about today, what might have changed? Oh dear, dear. <laughs> I've dreaded this question because I've listened to people answer it on your podcast and I thought, oh my goodness, what would you say? Um, it is only eight years away, Colin. <laughs> you know? But then on the other hand, I thought, well, eight years ago, eight years ago was pre-Brexit. We didn't know what was going to almost hit us as a society, almost like turning a corner, you know? So that was that was less than eight years. Can you believe it? That the changes that that triggered, um, fundamental, deep constitutional changes and challenges that weren't anticipated, that nobody saw coming. So the beauty of your question is that no matter what I say, <laughs> I can be quite certain that things will happen that we have no notion of at this moment. But I played with the idea all the same, just to have some fun. And I wondered if maybe in 2030 you would see the first meeting of the All-Island Assembly, it might be called, instalment. You know, if you might have the first meeting there in 2030, that might happen. Um, the second meeting might be in Armagh. The third meeting might be back in Dublin. I think Dublin have had the had a, had a throwaway for far too long. I think it's time for people in the north to stand up and say, "We want it our way in future. Um, we want you up here to storm and meet up here. You know, twice a year or something like that." It has to be in Derry, Eilish. That, Sorry about that, Colin. <laughs> the Guildhall is not big enough. You're going to need to, you're going to need a building program. You <laughs> could meet on in, the they could meet on the bridge, maybe. Uh, or the new, new university in Derry. Oh, the new university in Derry. They're, they bear in mind have a have an assembly room large enough for the new All Island Assembly of Women, and um, you know they'll be ably assisted by excellent men, I'm sure. 
Uh, so they, um, so th that's my pitch. <laughs> See how it goes. That's fantastic. It's perfect, really, way to to end the discussion. I've asked a lot of questions, Eilish, here, and you know things that I'm interested in. But is there anything that we haven't covered, or anything you would like to add by way of conclusion? I would. Yeah, I don't know who listens to your podcast. I do, Colin. But I would. That's two really, of us anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I would really um, like to encourage people to take part in the conversation. There are lots of opportunities. I know there are lots of opportunities online, but in local communities, um, people are beginning again to have gatherings together. And the Constitutional Conversations Group is really keen to respond to any requests, either, you know, open public meetings or private meetings, Chatham House rules, as they say, whatever, we're really keen to keep the conversation open and um, invite everyone who is interested and feels like they'd like to hear or participate to get in touch and we'll respond. Thank you very much, Eilish. What a wonderfully welcoming and inclusive way to end our conversation today. It's been an absolute pleasure to discuss these issues with you. I know that we'll continue in our work and the conversation will go on and really that encouraging message at the end would just really like to underline. It's been a privilege really working with you over a number of years. Eilish, really appreciate it engaging in the podcast today. Just want to wish you all the very best uh, with all your work in the future and just to thank you again. Thank you, Colin. It's been a pleasure.